0: Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. Before we jump into today's fascinating topic, the Slender Man, an internet horror legend, and uh, other uh, items under the heading of folklore, Uh, I want to get in a couple of responses, two or three responses to the program yesterday. We reached back in our archives and uh, gave you an encore presentation of my conversation from last fall with Thomas Ricks a former washington post pentagon correspondent he's written several books and the latest is churchill and orwell the fight for freedom in the book mr ricks uh, says that churchill and orwell were uh, their ages necessary men uh, seeing the dangers in both fascism and communism and uh, seeing that uh, freedom individual freedom was the the key fight We got to talking about current politics as well, and that's what provoked uh, some response. Uh, So in response to the morning broadcast, we have uh, this from uh, Steve. He says, I'm a fan of Thomas Ricks' earlier hard-hitting work and am disappointed to hear him today espousing positions that are not hard-hitting but instead border on Panglossian. Three points. The Constitution was a brilliant framework for its day, but even its designers were aware that over time it would require amendment, which hardly has been done over two centuries. Consequently, today it is not serving particularly well. Congress is beholden to special interests, not to its constituents. The Supreme Court won't challenge executive overreach, allows big money to control the political process, and is fine with gerrymandering. The president comports himself as a corrupt king, and Republican-controlled Congress won't raise a peep. We're living in what one New York Times columnist described as our so-called democracy. Second point, Mr. Rick seems to suggest that candidates in our country wouldn't do anything so barbaric as to slug reporters. Well, they certainly do. And the last time a candidate, a Republican naturally, body-slammed a reporter, not only was he elected to office, but he was seated and is serving in Congress still. Final point from Steve. Finally, Mr. Ricks saves his disappointment and opprobrium for Democrats. The Democrats? Are you kidding? It is the Republican Party which gave rise to Donald Trump, refuses to rein him in in any way, and has been chipping away at American democracy since the time of Richard Nixon. Unlike your guest, I feel there's very much to beware. That's Steve. Then, in response to the evening broadcast yesterday, this is another Steve. Um, he says, uh, this is a question to Mr. Ricks, and uh, so sorry, uh, Mr. Ricks, long gone. We won't be able to uh, pose this to him, but it an interesting question. Uh, Steve uh, says, really enjoyed your work over the years. I was particularly gratified reading your notes on my uncle, Matt Ridgway. I wonder if we he, if we had strong generals like that in this day and age, what they would be saying. But my question to you pertains to your comments on the differing political parties in the U.S. right now. You say that the Democratic candidate needs to be from Main Street, but how do you square this with the existence of the Citizens United decision? Thanks in regards. So uh, we'll just have to put that question out to our listeners. Finally, uh, in response to the similar thread in the conversation, we got this on Twitter And you can find us at UPR Access on Twitter. Um, And so Mr. Ricks uh, says, quoting him, we quoted him on Twitter, I think it's time for a new generation of leaders. I would like to see this whole generation of Democratic leaders move on. Schumer, Pelosi, and Sanders. I hope that the presidential candidate the Democratic Party puts out is in their 40s. And we had a uh, response uh, to to that from uh, one of our uh, listeners. Uh, This is James. He said, Michael Avenatti. Um, who's an interesting choice, uh, the lawyer for Stormy Daniels. Uh, I think what uh, our responder is saying is, is putting him forward as presidential candidate. So we will see. Uh, time will tell. Thanks for those responses. Keep those coming to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or to our Twitter feed uh, u- at upraxcess. <music> Thanks for tuning in to Access Utah today. If you're 12, Slenderman looks, lurks in the woods beyond the playground fence, faceless, taller than a slippery slide, arms and legs weirdly long, black-suited and silent. If you're Lynn McNeil, associate professor of English at USU, Slenderman is a living, evolving, endlessly fascinating example of folklore in the making. Plus, she says he's pretty creepy. Yes, he is. Um, and uh, this is an example of an Internet horror legend. We're going to talk about Slender Man and uh, other related uh, folklore topics on the program today. Uh, as the Fife Folklore Workshop is ongoing on the USU uh, campus, Uh folklorist says McNeil like to go in and look for patterns that form in the grassroots culture. And uh, this is an interesting one, Slender Man, because uh, he was created, and we know exactly when he was created, uh, but he's taken off on a life of his own. Uh, By the way, the uh, Five Folklore Workshop is ongoing, and so right at the conclusion of this program, if you're listening to the morning broadcast, uh, you can uh, head over to... um, the, the venue and uh, listen to Trevor Blank, who's one of my guests today, celebrity urban legends, humor and vernacular expression on and uh, the program says may start a bit late due to the radio interview, which we're doing right now. So uh, we'll try to get you to your your uh, presentation. Uh, at 1 o'clock today, a presentation by Elizabeth Tucker, the Blue Whale Suicide Challenge. And on Friday, 10 a.m., a presentation by Amanda Brennan, um, the Aesthetics of Creepy Tumblr, Sixpence, Bongazi, and Witchblur. So uh, that is all available to you on the USU uh, campus, the FIKE Folklore Workshop. We uh, welcome in Amanda Brennan. She's Tumblr's Senior Content Insights Manager and Internet Librarian. Amanda Brennan, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Uh, Elizabeth uh, Tucker is Distinguished Service Professor of English at Binghamton University, specializes in children's and adolescence folklore, folklore of the supernatural, and legends. Thanks for coming in.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Uh, I read here that uh, you're co-author with Dr. McNeil of forthcoming book, Legend Trips, temporary legend handbook. Yes. So we'll look forward to that. Thank you. Uh, Trevor Blank is Associate Professor of Communication at uh, State University of New York at Potsdam, and uh, he is uh, author of a forthcoming book, Slenderman is Coming, along with uh, Dr. McNeil. That's coming out shortly.
3: Yes, uh, early September of this year.
0: Okay. i uh, get the microphone a little closer to, either, to you there. Thank you. Um, I'm not sure who wants to tackle this. The, it, Slenderman is very interesting to me. Interesting to a lot of people, I think. You're having a whole conference on it here. Uh, because we know exactly when and how and why <laughs> this legend was created. This didn't come out of the mist of time, right? Uh, so 2009. Somebody want
3: to tell me the story of the creation? It was sure. Uh, well, in June of 2009, there was a competition on the website Something Awful uh, that was essentially trying to get people to create a Photoshopped image that seemed real but was actually fake. Uh, and so what ended up surfacing uh, was a post by uh, someone going under the screen named Victor Surge. Uh, posted an image of a bunch of children hanging around on a playground set with a mysterious shadowy creature hanging around in the background. Uh, and it was followed with a caption that essentially stated that some of these children were missing uh, and the photographer's unknown. Uh, but it it, it p- placed it in the 1980s, so it seemed like it was in the not-too-distant past. Um, and then a second image surfaced as well, also with children and with a mysterious blurry creature in the background kind of menacingly looking on. Uh, and... Really what it did was inspire a lot of people to start telling their own versions of the story of Slender Man. It kind of took on a life of its own. So even though it was created uh, for this Something Awful forum to try to creep people out and make it seem believable, people kind of just ran away with that into their own creative processes of developing stories about the Slender Man creature and him showing up through all different periods of American history and world history um, back into Germany and, and through America, and it's kind of taken on a life of its own.
2: Mm.
0: As I looked at this photograph, and I had not been that familiar with Slender Man, I, I pulled up this photograph, and I, I I was creeped out, I have to have to say. It was very well done by by, by Eric Knudsen, right? Is it Knudsen or Knudsen? 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 Uh, so it's children in the foreground. Uh, one uh, girl is, uh, you know, climbing halfway up the uh, to the slide. Other children, and and then you realize in the background near the, uh, in the background of the photo, there's there is this tall, slender man, faceless, right? In, yes, in a suit, yes, uh, with long arms, kind of perhaps tentacly.
3: Yeah, it it varies depending on uh, on who you ask what what Slenderman is supposed to look like. But from the pictures, it was basically a a, a humanoid-looking creature with no face, no facial features, no eyes, no nose, but just a blank canvas for a face. Uh, and typically wearing a suit of some kind, and uh, sometimes having tentacles as well.
0: Yeah. I want to read this caption. This caption was created by Mr. Knudsen. One of two recovered photographs from the Sterling City Library blaze, notable for being taken on the day in which 14 children vanished. Deformities in the rear of the photo are, are cited as film defects by officials. 1986, photographer Mary Thomas missing since June 13th, 1986. So some more mystery there.
3: Yes, absolutely. And, and this is a part of the uh, appeal for this as, a, as a, a legend to kind of take off. Uh, one of the defining characteristics of a legend is that it seems real. It seems believable. It seems plausible even. Uh, and so adding in these little details like a, a blaze of a, of a library or a person missing or uh, official statements on a particular issue make it seem more authentic and therefore more easy to transmit as believable to other people.
0: Mm-hmm. We turn to our uh, meme librarian here for Tumblr. Um, this is it took off, and, and and the you know the 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 original source for this was a, a photograph, right? That's correct. And and so you know, meme like I guess, or it is. Would yeah. this be considered a meme?
1: Uh, Slenderman is completely a meme. Uh, in my prior life, before Tumblr, I worked for the website Know Your Meme, which catalogs the history. So when I was there, we traced the origin. And ten days after the photo was posted, to something awful. A completely different set of people in the U.S. created a YouTube series called Marble Hornets, and they took this image and they were like, "All right, let's make a web series about it." And through Marble Hornets which has, at its conclusion, about 80 episodes, they created a whole canon around Slenderman where you saw the picture, you saw the suit, the tentacle-y parts, Uh, but they gave the idea that when Slenderman appeared on camera, he would cause glitching, and uh, all technology would stop working. And if you saw him, you would get sick. You would get what is called slender sickness, start coughing.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Um, So uh, I want to... uh I want to turn to you, Elizabeth Tucker. This is what I had trouble getting my mind around was, I guess you can explain this to me as a folklorist, um, 2009, we know the guy who did it, we know the contest that he did it for, it's admittedly very good work um, and creepy, but then how does this become a legend? Because we know exactly where it started, how and why.
2: That's a great question. I think the reason why this becomes a legend is that it grows from a long past of similar stories, which folklorists would call cautionary tales, stories that people tell about dangerous, worrisome things that might happen, including abduction of children. And there's a whole set of child-stealing, gigantic, creepy figures across different cultures, including some Native American cultures. In the Pacific Northwest, for example, there's Slug Woman, who carries a basket on her back to stuff in all the children she catches who are straying from home. And then in upstate New York, there is High Hat, who is also wandering around catching any children who aren't minding their parents. So Mm. from those stories, you can tell that it's, it's... Meant to make children behave themselves. And then the oldest one, on which I think many of these are based, is the Pied Piper legend from Mm. 13th century Germany about the mysterious Piper who comes in, kills the rats that are infesting a town, and then when he's not paid properly, takes the children to pay back Mm. the stingy people of the town and seals them all inside a mountain
0: yeah Uh, especially scary right to uh, threatening the children and and trevor blank this slender man is especially threatening to children
3: yes absolutely i mean one of the the uh the genre that kind of developed uh alongside the uh kind of formation of the Slenderman mythos uh, was a genre known as creepypasta, uh, which essentially is short fictional horror stories that uh, are typically shared online uh, and predominantly geared towards youth, children and adolescents, young adults. Um, and the point of, uh, of sharing these kind of stories is to, to scare uh, one another, but also as uh, a way to kind of uh, negotiate the, the, the complex world that they're coming to to terms with as they are entering adulthood.
0: Mm. And to go back to that question that I posed to you, Dr. Tucker, um, in in quoting from the forthcoming book that you're involved with, Trevor Blink, um, it's often easy to find evidence for Slenderman's historical presence in antiquity as it is to find proof that he was created out of whole cloth in 2009. Because of the nature of the internet, right? Because there, there's been so much built up. The the backstory, the history. Slenderman even has a daughter, I guess, right? Yes, uh, Slender Sally. Slender, yeah. So what? Slender Sally.
3: Slender Sally.
0: Yeah, I want to hear about her. Um, and then, Cot, re- returning to quote from uh, you and Dr. McNeil, mm-hmm. the concepts such as truth and proof have become surprisingly permeable these days. It's perhaps no no surprise that concepts like fiction and reality can be reconciled fairly easily on, okay. on the internet, right?
3: Oh, absolutely! Uh, you know, we we live in an era where uh, it's easy to dismiss uh, facts or, or to come up with alternative facts, um, and. Uh you know in all of us we have a desire and and, and urge and, and want to believe in things um and even things that you know we can suspend our disbelief on um is enjoyable to to play with and and this is part of what this is all about is 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 it is a form of play uh which is something that folklorists and child psychologists take very seriously even though it may seem somewhat trivial as a, as a subject matter for study
0: yeah uh, so, Dr. Tucker, I want to come back to you. Um, you write, in fact, in, in your article in this, uh, I, I should tell people that I'm um, uh, referencing as well a, uh, a whole issue of uh, contemporary legend, um, which was devoted to Slender Man. So you reference a date, which is an important date and an unfortunate date, May 31st, 2014. What happened on that date?
2: Well, that was the date of the stabbing in Waukesha, Wisconsin, of uh, young young girl, Peyton Leutner, 12 years old, by two other 12-year-olds. And this shocked and horrified people around the world, including folklorists. I was in Prague at the International Society for Contemporary Legend Research meeting, and we woke up to the news on our phones that what had been a subject of interest to folklorists at our annual conferences had become an international horror story of a a little girl stabbed many times by her two good friends after a slumber party when they went out in the woods. And it was absolutely horrifying and perplexing. And in, in my talk yesterday, I was addressing the fact that many adults were completely mystified by what happened, and all of us were very upset by this occurrence. And so one thing that folklorists can try to do is to try to shed some light on this and put it in the context of children's folklore and other patterns. Mm-hmm. that helped to make some sense of it.
0: One of these so called friends who did the stabbing referenced Slenderman, right? And then...
2: Yes. Well they the the two girls who did the stabbing, Morgan and Anisa, had been reading a lot about Slenderman online and they decided that they were going to be Slenderman's proxies or servants and that to please Slenderman they had to harm someone. Very badly, and so they laid the plot that they were going to stab their friend, and they kept looking for opportunities yeah. to do it, and then they did it.
0: So, in the world of folklore, that I mean, this must be very troubling. This is, you know, not something, not a phenomenon to whereby we study, you know, ourselves. It, it becomes real life in and in an attempted murder, essentially.
2: Mm-hmm. It was horrifying.
0: Um, I understand as well. There, uh, Slunderman has a connection to some suicides, in the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation.
2: That is contested. Okay. Um, it's yes one of one of the possible connections to Slenderman. I don't think it's really been established, but there was maybe Trevor would have something more to say. I'm about not that,
3: actually right? familiar with that mm-hmm. particular case.
0: Yeah. Uh, just a just a, a passage and some of the one of the things I was reading here. Um, let's see. I want to turn back to the to, to the memes. The the creepy
1: the creepy pasta the
0: creepy creepy pasta the the the, the, the 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 kind of the dark the dark memes right mm-hmm. there are memes you know there's there's cuddly cat memes there's uh, you know there's all, all sorts of things but you've you've made a well a study of all the memes i guess mm-hmm. the meme librarian um what do you think is going on with the with with the horror, the dark ones? Uh, what where are we, what are people trying to do there?
1: I think it's just about exploring your doc, your dark thoughts and trying to work work through what's going on and kind of. Um, explore what's scary. Uh, Libby actually yesterday was talking about Bloody Mary. And when I was younger, I remember, you know, oh, let's go into a room and chant into a mirror. And this is kind of an online way of doing that. Uh, It's just... There's a lot of creepypasta around video games. There's one about Zelda called Ben Drowned. And there's one around Pokemon uh, with the Lavender Town theme where there's these just these stories because these are what kids are playing and they're growing up and they're like, oh, but what if what if something scary happens? And I think it's just a natural progression as we become more online and more involved with technology. These things that, you know, we did as kids are now in the context of games or in or the internet,
0: mm. just, just children just taking those to the new playground, I guess.
1: Exactly.
2: Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, so I know you do a study of this, uh, Elizabeth Tucker, uh, this kind of play, and 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 so uh, take Bloody Mary. What's what's going on there? I get people, uh, kids just want to scare themselves. Is that
2: Bloody Mary is a hugely popular ritual. Sometimes I take my students to. Practice it. We go into one of the nearby bathrooms and we say Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary in front of the mirror. And then they talk about their experiences with it. it both boys and girls do Bloody Mary a lot anywhere from the age of seven, six or seven even mm-hmm. up through high school. And I've known college students who take it very seriously and think, maybe they will be able to summon some sort of spirit Mm -hmm. in the mirror if they do it just right you have to say the the names just right the right number, the right intonation and then you wait. It's similar to what Trevor was just saying about wanting to believe you may think it's a little unlikely that Bloody Mary will actually appear in the mirror but you kind of hope maybe she will.
0: Right and I guess uh, one person's real experience is uh, the other person's folklore right? Um, We were talking before we were on on the air that some of this room have had uh, experience, right? You, oh yes. Am- Amanda, you worked at college radio. Did you?
1: That's correct. I went to Drew University in Madison, New Jersey, and our radio station was WMNJ. And we had a very creepy radio station in the basement. It was old and it had double doors. And one night I was doing my show late at night and the inside door, which I had locked, uh, opened. And there had been stories. I was a freshman at the time, so all the seniors were like, "You shouldn't go down there at night. It's very creepy. You'll see shadows." And when it opened, uh, I like—I was ninety-nine percent sure I had locked it, and I was very freaked out. And I was like, "Hello, listeners. I am going upstairs. Goodbye." And I <laughs> shut my show off, went upstairs, and <laughs> yeah, um, how was that?
0: So pretty creepy. So creepy. Yeah. Did you didn't go back down there at the night again? Or?
1: Uh, no. I moved my show. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. That's, that is creepy. But Trevor, do you have any experiences? Um,
3: I don't have so many creepy experiences of my own. I've mostly collected other people's creepy experiences. One of my favorites, I'm, I'm originally from Maryland. Uh, one of my, my favorites is the story of Black Aggie, which was a uh, statue. Um, and this is relevant as well because there's the Weeping Woman statue here in Logan, um, which kind of shares similarities to the story I'm about to tell. Uh, the story of Black Aggie was basically there was um, a, a statue named, Known as Grief, which was, uh, which was commissioned uh, by uh, General Friedrich Agnes, um, but it was actually a copy of another existing statue that was in uh, Washington, D.C. And uh, this statue is a, a woman with kind of a shroud over her face looking down uh, with her hands outstretched um, and was just kind of had a, and because of the, the way the sculpture was created, it had kind of a shadow over her face so you couldn't really see it, it looked very dark. Uh, and so what ended up happening was around in the 1950s or so, uh, as kind of a gang initiation ritual. Uh, people would start going to the cemetery where this statue was at midnight, uh, always at midnight, and uh, would sit in her arms. Uh, and the idea was that if you sit in her arms at midnight, her eyes will glow red, and if you were a pregnant female, you would miscarry or become infertile. Um, and so this became kind of a, a gang initiation ritual that kind of transitioned into being kind of a college initiation ritual um this practice is what folklore would call legend tripping uh where you hear a story and then you go and act it out to to test if it's real uh which kind of adds a different dimension to the belief and to the, sh- the share of the nar- the sharing of the narrative um and so um other people would say that if you walked around at midnight you uh the statue would come to life and would walk around the grounds for anybody who was around um and uh, so I, I think it's it's fantastic um, as an example of folklore because um, we have different versions of that similar story in all different kind of places. And one, of course, is the Weeping Woman here in Logan um, with, you know, similar kind of mystique surrounding it.
0: So, Elizabeth Tucker, you've got a forthcoming book on legend tripping.
2: Yes, with Lynn McNeil.
0: Um, and I, as I've told Lynn McNeil before, I, I, I don't understand it. I, I don't want to go out and... I don't want to go down the basement and see the ghost, but uh, some people do, right? They they want to go and have an encounter.
2: Yes, uh, particularly young people tend to want to do that because it's a test of your courage and it's a chance to show your peer group that you're tough and strong and you can overcome your natural fear to go out at night in the dark with friends, usually in an old clunky car, and go to a place that's notorious because of a haunting or a crime or... Maybe both of them. An example of that in my state is the Amityville Horror House, which Mm. had the two Amityville Horror movies made about it. And media play into that a lot. You know, the people have seen the movie and then they want to go out at night and see the site. And so they go to the place and they hope that something horrible will happen. But they hope it won't be too bad for them. So there's mm. kind of a fine line between being excited and, and being so scared that you just want to get out of there right.
0: fast. Some people go, uh, you know, that, um, spend the night in an old prison, an old insane asylum, right?
2: Yes. Insane asylums are insanely popular as legend trip destinations.
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, people just hoping to have have that kind of an experience, but but I guess not too bad. They don't, wanna,
2: right. they, they know, don't want to be scared to, to death, for, you know, be killed. <laughs> quote
0: unquote. Yeah. Uh, let's take a break when we come back more on the Slenderman, on digital folklore, and uh, on uh, creepy internet uh, memes. All of that uh, is being explored at the Five Folklore Workshop on the USU campus through this week. It uh, started earlier the week. It will end on Friday. And uh, you have opportunity to... Uh, to come to uh, the public's parts of that. So 10 o'clock today, 10 a.m., presentation by Trevor Blank, who's in studio with us, cele- Celebrity Urban Legends, Humor and Vernacular Expression Online. At 1 o'clock this afternoon, Elizabeth Tucker, The Blue Whale Suicide Challenge. I want to ask you, uh, to about that uh, after the break, and I'll ask Amanda Brennan about her presentation, which is happening on Friday, 10 a.m. Uh, it's called The Aesthetics of Creepy Tumblr, Sixpence, Bongazi and Witchblur and uh, should mention a couple of uh, books are coming out Slenderman is coming by Lynn McNeil and Trevor Blank that's coming out in September from USU Press and the book on legend tripping when when is that coming out? This fall. I think. You know, okay coming out in the fall all right we'll have more following the break
1: when farmers begin planting crops for the season they must pay for necessary supplies such as seeds fertilizers equipment and labor Community Supported Agriculture, or a CSA, is a partnership between a farm and people in the community. CSA members buy shares the beginning of the growing season to help cover farmers' costs, and then regularly receive fresh produce once harvesting begins. Researchers in USU's Department of Applied Economics examined behavioral changes among people who participate in CSAs. They discovered that more than 92% of participants reported that their overall nutrition improved during these programs, demonstrating that CSAs can improve people's diets while boosting local economies.
3: Support for Ag Matters on Utah Public Radio is provided in part by our members and by the College of Agriculture and Applied Sciences at Utah State University, offering more than 70 degrees with courses available at USU campuses throughout the state and online. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Apogee Instruments, a Cache Valley company building precision sensors that support global research in sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change.
0: Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, we're talking about uh, folklore. And uh, the Five Folklore Workshop is ongoing this week on the USU campus. Um, folklore, though, is is rapidly moving. It's moving into the digital age. And uh, so the title, or the main focus of this year's Five Folklore Workshop, is The Slender Man. It's an Internet uh, horror um, legend. It uh, was created out of whole cloth. Uh, Digital cloth, albeit uh, 2009, and it's taken off on a life of its own. Um, We're talking about related topics as well. You can join us. We'd love to hear your creepy story um, at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Or you can join us at upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter at upraccess. Thanks for listening today. Uh, I should mention that uh, coming up, there, there's a lot happening in the Five Folklore Workshop, but there are three public presentations of interest to you. Possibly if you're in the northern Utah area, you could uh, come up on the USU campus for these. Ten o'clock today, immediately uh, following this program, uh, Trevor Blank will be giving a presentation titled Celebrity Urban Legends, Humor and Vernacular Expression Online. One o'clock this afternoon... Elizabeth Tucker's presentation, The Blue Whale Suicide Challenge, and Friday, 10 a.m., presentation by Amanda Brennan, uh, who's the meme librarian for Tumblr, The Aesthetics of Creepy Tumblr, Sixpence, Bone Gazi, and Witch Blur. Um, and so that's all coming up on the USU campus. I want to start with Amanda Brennan. Tell me about this, The, accent, the Aesthetics of Creepy Tumblr.
1: Yeah, so uh, Tumblr is very unique. It's uh, the social media platform where you go to connect with people over interests. And a lot of people who talk about creepy things, there's a range of how they do it. Uh, So Sixpence is a user, it's spelled with, I think, threes at the end. And they are an amateur folklorist. They compile creepy stories from across the internet. They put together what's called master posts, or uh, like an index of all of the links that they can find on certain topics. And they're very, Interested in ghosts, uh, Bone Gazi or should I jump in there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Bone Gazi was something that happened in 2015 where a Tumblr user was accused of stealing bones from a graveyard uh, to do some creepy witchcraft and posted about it. And people were like, "You just stole some bones. Hmm. This is this is not good." And she, the user, was eventually arrested uh, for desecrating a, ga- a grave. And it became a kind of meme in Tumblr. Uh, in the Tumblr ecosystem, like don't go steal bones. Uh, so people are very open with their interests, and uh, they're willing to call each other out when stuff is inappropriate.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Uh, so this this uh, essentially a confession of a crime is what. Yeah. <laughs> what, um... what happened? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what else? What, what What are some other examples of? Uh...
1: Uh, so Witch blur is our witch community. And uh, there's a, a meme on Tumblr where if you're part of a community, you'll either uh, add on Tumblr to it, like artist on Tumblr or poets on Tumblr, or blur. So uh, Fit Blur is our fitness community. Witch our witches. Um, and then there's Bookler, our community for book nerds. And they'll use this tag to kind of congregate and find each other as a way to join the community. And we've seen a huge surge since probably late 2016, early 2017, in witches, people who are either practicing some kind of crystal magic or reading tarot. Uh, We have a lot of green witches who are very interested in plants and uh, herbs, and also kitchen witches who use cooking as their form of magic. And it's just a really pure kind of thing. And uh, we think that it's kind of reaction to everything that's out of control in the world right now. Like, politics are all over the place, and it's really wild. And this is kind of a grounding experience for people to take part in, to bring them back to the nature and still do it in the context of the Internet, but to feel more connected to the world around you. Hmm.
0: Uh, so kind of a response to today's just chaotic world yeah it's
1: it's something just to drive people back to something and especially with crystals like it's organic and maybe crystals don't mean anything but if you're putting your energy into something and just it makes you feel grounded there's good in that Mm -hmm.
0: a lot of what we work through in folklore is is our fears right um and slender man is especially powerful because he's threatening to children and that we do all have fears of that um, I was reading about uh, Candle Cove. Are you familiar with yeah. Candle Candle Cove? Uh, tell me about this. Uh,
3: Candle Cove uh, was a creepy pasta that uh, essentially uh, was um, a story about people remembering a children's show that they watched after school. I believe in the nineteen seventies, and. Um, Everyone would remember that there was, like, a pirate character in it and that uh, they would uh, – and they were talking about, oh, yeah, I remember this character. I remember this character. or oh, I remember this episode. I remember them playing with certain puppets. But uh, the end result is that the show actually never existed and that this is all just kind of a uh, a case of, of, uh, of, of the Tulpa effect at work, um, you know, where – Everybody's kind of uh, perceptions of of an event uh, created the reality for it uh, in so many ways, uh, and so that when people come to the discovery that this show actually never existed, that's kind of the creepy part of it—that all these different people claim to have this experience, uh, but nevertheless didn't. Uh, it was just something that that you know their fragmented minds kind of pieced together.
0: Hmm. Elizabeth Tucker, um, I guess, children process this. Uh, you know, I guess on the one hand you know bloody mary they they want to scare themselves but you don't want to get too scared right and right. some of this i guess uh, is is kids processing this for themselves
2: sure and one of the points i was making yesterday is that children have a very complex way of dealing with reality and fantasy in fact it's it's too simplistic to use only the words reality and fantasy because children perceive their life and have rich imaginative experiences. And they're very skilled at negotiating different levels of what we would call reality and fantasy. Sometimes adults don't pay much attention to that because of what Brian Sutton Smith calls the triviality barrier, the idea that what kids do isn't very important and doesn't matter as much as what adults are doing. And so sometimes adults miss things that kids are doing and don't understand quite so well how they are perceiving things. That was one of the problems after the Slender Man stabbing because for many adults, it was almost incomprehensible that children could do such a thing. Mm-hmm. Even though they had been children themselves and had probably run across some dark play at some point, sometimes adults choose not to remember that mm. in relation to their own kids because they don't want their own kids to do it.
0: We don't want to. We don't want to focus on it, right? That, right. Be, because we don't want to even think that something like this stabbing could happen. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you would. Uh, Tell me about this. Uh, Your your presentation is uh, is coming up on uh, the blue whale suicide challenge.
2: Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, This is an ongoing research project, um, which was suggested by Trevor. So I want to thank Trevor for making that good suggestion to me. It's been very complex because it's a rumor panic that began in 2016, and in the English-speaking world in the spring of 2017, when people learned that a Russian social media group called Vkontakte had started a series of 50 challenges that it would ask vulnerable teens to perform. It, so the person, the person who would do that would be called either a curator or an administrator. And there's also been the very interesting suggestion that the instigators of this challenge that culminates in suicide is not human, but a bot. People say there are thousands of Russian bots out there that are telling our children they need to perform 50 creepy, horrible tasks, including carving a whale on their arms, listening to scary music, waking themselves up at 3 in the morning to watch a horrifying video, and doing increasingly terrible things until at the 50th task they jump off a building or hang themselves or something horrible like that. So of course this this is terrifying to contemplate. There have been suicides in countries around the world by young people, and so there's been a huge uproar about whether this is caused by the Blue Whale Challenge or whether these are suicides that might have happened for other reasons. Mm. And in fact, I could compare that to your bringing up the rumor that the suicides at the Pine Ridge Reservation were related to Slender Man. Um, Because one of of the issues with the Blue Whale Suicide Challenge is whether there actually are people out there controlling our kids and telling them to commit suicide or whether there is this tendency towards self-destruction among adolescents. And so people tend to Give it the name of blue whale mm-hmm. as a way to try to understand it and assign some blame.
0: And that distinction, of course, is not academic. It's a very, it's, I mean, it is academic in a way, but very, very, uh, ha- has impact in the real world because it does. There's a fear what if someone out there is controlling my child? Exactly. Um, it could just be uh, you know a fear that we assign to to then something that happens uh, but what if right and so really do have to look into it
2: we do and in fact just some of the information that Amanda was giving us yesterday was so interesting because people are worried sometimes about the impact of the internet you know the way that some internet, influences are going to harm us. But then also on the internet, you can find groups on Tumblr, for example, that give you a sense of fellowship and support and happiness and good humor and laughter. And so there's both sides, the sense that the internet may be controlling us and harming us, but also it's providing consolation and making us feel good.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I wonder if you'd talk about that. Uh, this is, in some ways, I'm sure, this is just the new place we come together in social groups
1: yeah completely
0: is in in you know so that's the good side right is is there something different about the way we interact on the internet that's that's harmful or is it just we bring all of our foibles and our positives to the internet
1: i think it's a little bit of what you're doing. And I think it's great to put this in the context of the Slenderverse, it, what it's called. is The Slenderverse is the whole uh, blogs and uh, what YouTube series, all of the content around Slenderman. Uh, one of the examples I used yesterday was a post where someone uh, put up on Tumblr, I love the Slenderverse. You know, it's comforting to me. I love watching this series when I'm sad. It makes me happy. And the people that I found here are are my people. They understand me. And when when I don't feel like I fit in, I can go here and find, you know, talk to the people who get me. And I think no matter what kind of community you're in, you can find your people online, whether that's good or bad, like in the case of the uprising of Nazis right now online, or in the case of like finding your fitness partner online and there's a lot of ways you can do that and it's it's a double-edged sword when you give people a way to find community whether it's a for a good or a bad reason i don't know it's it's a tough thing working in internet culture right now trying to work through that
0: i wonder um you know we could turn into an angry old man here shaking my fist but um I think there is a perception out there that uh, in the olden days we had just three networks (laughs) we gathered to watch Cronkite and Johnny Carson. There was at least some shared experience, you know. Whether or not you agreed with what was being said, it was only only a few choices, and Mm -hmm. therefore that promoted kind of a cohesiveness. You know, that we're all sitting around the same campfire. Now, you know, you can you can go find your own very specific group. Yeah, there's there's fragmentation, perhaps. I suppose there's good and bad happening. I wonder what your perspective is.
1: Yeah, I think it's it allows people to really be the truest form of themselves. Like, if you are very interested in Furbies in 2018, there's a whole community of Furby people on Tumblr, and they're making art. There's a thing called a long Furby. uh, And you can look it up someone bought a bunch of furbies stitched them together and created this new weird thing and it brings them so much joy Mm. and it's very harmless it's just like oh furbies that was a thing when i was growing up in the early late 90s early 2000s and to see someone just bringing new life into it like what's the harm in that and if I, like, live in a rural area where, like, I love Furbies, but everyone else thinks I'm weird, it's really comforting to go online and to find the people who get it, to find the people who share the thing that you love the most. And I I think in that context, it's just really wonderful because you can be so, so much more of a fuller person and dive into the thing you love with the people who love it just like you do.
0: Hmm. I wonder, uh, just one more thing on this uh, t- subtopic. Um I love that phenomenon. For example, on YouTube, mm-hmm. I will sometimes do a deep dive and spend the evening, well, I have at least once, uh, spent the evening uh, searching Romanian sopranos. Yeah. You know? Um, and like everyone does, right? But but that's the point. <laughs> Maybe I should get off my couch and go to the opera and, and uh, associate with, like people, is it healthy for me to be
1: Yeah. Just imagine if you were a teenager and you didn't have money to go to the opera, but you find out you love Romanian Sopranos. And mm -hmm. like the beauty of Internet community is you can find something that you didn't even know you loved. Um, I'm very into miniature food and people make it out of uh, polymer clay. And I didn't even know that was a thing until I stumbled upon it on Tumblr. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And now, like, I follow a bunch of blogs. I've bought art pieces like uh, I have a full tea set on a ring and it's just like it's this weird thing that I would have never found without the internet.
0: Hmm. Elizabeth Tucker I wonder if you've thought about this in relation to you you study you know children and uh, and their play and the the legends and their folklore I wonder if you've thought uh, any about the connection to what kids do online I guess they take some of that online they're able to find people that uh, maybe they didn't know were out there that share their views online but uh, there might be a danger, or not, of, of maybe becoming isolated online too.
2: That's the perfect question for me because since the early 2000s, I've been doing all my research on children using YouTube because well, actually, I have to say since 2005, because that's when it started. But with YouTube, you have many, many performances that children have chosen to create. And it's become hugely influential. I, I showed yesterday a couple of prank videos made by kids who are pranking their younger brothers or sisters, pretending to be Slenderman, scaring them to death, making them scream. The more genuine the scream, the better the prank succeeds. And then all these kids get online and say, Oh, great job, or, Oh, your brother's a pussy, <laughs> or things like that. Um, have a lot of fun. And then those videos influence other people's pranking and influence the flow of the folk culture mm-hmm. in one direction or another. So so kids have just become very screen-oriented in terms of their folk behavior, including pranks. And with Slender Man pranks in particular, they become the bogeyman. One of them takes on the powerful role okay. of the yeah. guy wearing a pillowcase over his head in a suit jacket who mm-hmm. scares younger, more gullible people into gibbering screaming you know (laughs) incoherent behavior which makes them very happy and then they go online going yeah i did it (laughs) so they have a lot of fun
0: i guess this is a way to co-opt the legend right and to take some of the fear out of it if you become slender man yourself right exactly yeah Yeah. i would just have a couple of minutes uh literally two minutes so uh trevor blank i want you to tell me just uh, the the one-minute, minute-and-a-half version of celebrity urban legends, humor, and the vernacular expression online. Then you'll give the hour-long version here in about five minutes.
3: Yes. Uh, well, basically, I'll be talking about um, how celebrities kind of are, are intimate strangers, and even though we don't have uh, a real relationship with them typically, it's typically a one sided relationship uh, that we project onto. Uh, nevertheless, when someone uh, dies or uh, has an accidental drug overdose or something happens, um, we express our, our different anxieties or our different feelings about that celebrity through humor uh, or through urban legends. Um, and so I'll be talking about a bunch of different examples of, uh, of urban legends that um, have followed celebrities uh, throughout their careers and what kind of that means, uh, as well as some of the jokes and uh, death humor surrounding like Michael Jackson, for example. Um, and I, I should probably stop there or I'll get too carried away. Okay, all right. <laughs> Very
0: good. And I can't let the program go without this. You won an award for research <laughs> on fart lore. Yes, I did. Is that what I think it is?
3: It's exactly what you think it is. Okay. Yeah, it was uh, uh, an article titled "Cheeky Behavior: The Meaning and Function of Fart Lore in Childhood and Adolescence." (laughs) So, one of my one of my favorite titles I've ever come up with.
0: (laughs) I'll remind you that you're listening to NPR. Um, Your (laughs) public radio station. Uh, That's, hey, you know, not a bad gig.
3: Hey, I I won an award, so So, therefore it's uh,
0: it's (laughs) legit now. That's right. That's right. Uh, Just 30 seconds here to tell you about the presentations coming up. It's the Five Folklore Workshop, which is ongoing at the USU campus. Presentation by Trevor Blank here in about five minutes on the USU campus. Celebrity, urban legends, humor, and vernacular expression online. One o'clock today, a presentation by Elizabeth Tucker. The Blue Whale Suicide Challenge and Friday at 10 a.m., presentation by Amanda Brennan, The Aesthetics of Creepy Tumbler, Sixpence, Bongazi, and Witchblur. And we have had with us uh, Trevor Blank, Elizabeth Tucker, and uh, Amanda Brennan, uh, who are all participating in the Fife Folklore Workshop. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thank you so it's much. So it's much. So it's been
1: much. Amazing. Thank
0: you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah today. Uh, I just want to mention, before we go to our bread and butter feature, that tomorrow, hope you'll tune in, we're ca- talking about the... Uh, Family separations at the border, hot topic, and we want you to weigh in with your opinion. That's the topic tomorrow. Thanks for listening today.
4: Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Lale Gilbert. While waiting in a grocery line the other day, I overheard someone debating with her friend whether or not it would be worth her time to learn to cook. Sometimes it seems kind of a waste, she was saying. I wanted at that point to drop my celery stock dramatically into my cart and grasp this person by the shoulders. I didn't, but I wanted to. Why, I'd ask her with an intense and penetrating gaze, would you ever consider not learning to cook? A hundred years ago, I wanted to say, the entire check stand pausing respectfully to hear my message, a hundred years ago, everyone produced food in one way or another ranchers, farmers, cheesemakers, butchers, gardeners, bakers, brewers. A hundred years ago, food was not a hobby. If you didn't know how to blend flour and yeast to rise, to preserve ripe pears in hot jars and churn cream into butter, you simply didn't eat. And then something changed. We evolved so people standing in the line at the grocery store could ponder over whether learning to properly fry an egg was worth their time. Don't get me wrong. It's not that I envy the drudgery of that time, especially for women. We've come a long way towards allowing people the freedom to choose how they use their time. It's just that we've become passive about food, about the one thing that people have been obsessed with since before Homo sapiens stood upright, the one thing that literally sustains our bodies and keeps our hearts pumping. The pursuit of food has become blasé, and we have become consumers of food and no longer producers of it. What's the big deal with being a consumer? The young woman at the grocery checkout line might retort, flipping her organic beef and cheese burrito casually onto the conveyor belt and snapping her gum. We're getting the calories we need to sustain our pumping hearts. Plus we don't have to get up at 4 a.m. to milk the cows. Point taken, as someone who values the snooze button as a major advantage of modern day society, I appreciate the flexibility and ease of our food system. But truth is, despite adequate calories, we've lost something by not being a producer. First, we don't understand food systems. We don't really know how or where that chicken in the chicken salad on rye you had for lunch was hatched, raised, slaughtered, or processed. We don't know what was mixed with the meat, how long it was stored, how it was cooked and ignorance, which can lead to some weird effects. Major waste, for one, and occasional adulteration. On the other hand, our lack of understanding is leading to weird ideas about purity and health that aren't really based in reality. Second, our taste buds are being manipulated. Chips are too savory. Drinks are too sweet. We expect perfect apples and don't know how to identify spoiled yogurt. And we don't recognize this as a fraud because we never experience food in the raw. Third, some of us become food trolls in the sense that they feel entitled to criticize what they put in their mouth without really understanding the standards they should be basing their criticism on. Finally, when we are food consumers only without dabbling in the production, we lose a simple beauty of food that has nothing to do with plating or taste or Michelin stars. Peeling a carrot, the delicious warmth of melting butter, the satisfying content of slipping your spatula under a perfectly turned out biscuit, there is something written deep in our genetics that gives pleasure in that process, a process that many people don't even get to experience on most days. But how can one become a culinary producer, my young woman might ask? Where would I start? And the answer, of course, is cook dinner. And don't cook by mixing a can of cream of mushroom soup with a packet of ranch dressing. Start from scratch if possible. It's as simple as that. And then if you want to do more, visit a gardener's market. Make jam from strawberries in season. Grow a zucchini and eat it. Chop up cilantro and tomatoes into salsa and store it in jars. Being a producer and not just a consumer is not easy, but it is an absolute privilege, a gift really. Producers are empowered, they are happy. And they get full in a way that being a consumer alone never really allows you to do. This is Lael Gilbert for Bread and Butter.